Hey guys, I'm Danny. And I'm EJ. And this is the Your Living Proof Podcast. Where we talk about addiction and how it affects the family. From the brutal to the beautiful and everything in between. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. This is number 67. The Your Living Proof Podcast, 67. And if you're a first-timer, just to remind you, this podcast is for people who love someone who's struggling with addiction. So we are your people. If you love somebody who's struggling with addiction, welcome to the family. Welcome. We do believe wholeheartedly that the greatest threat in the world to addiction is a family who learns how to effectively intervene, support their loved one in a full program of recovery, what that looks like, what that takes, and also getting themselves healthy through the process. Yes. Family is the key. Recovery. And I, I do get pushback from people saying, well, that's not fair. Not everybody has a family. And I unfortunately know that's true. Yes. And we do get pushback on that all the time. And I wish that I could change that part of the world. Like, I wish that everyone had a family. Um, who wanted to help. Who wanted to help, who could help. Unfortunately, I can't change that. But for those that have a family um, that want to understand and want to do better... Yeah, and you haven't been able to figure out how to get through to this person. This is it. You found your place, your people. So thank you yes. for joining. I also think it's amazing that we've survived 67 episodes. Honestly, I do too, considering that you were supposed to just do this podcast alone. Remember that? Wow. And, and then, then you made and me then do I it thought, with you. Good, there's a good marketing <laughs> strategy when you put a pretty face on there. No, no, it was, I, I'm like, okay, here we go. But it's actually been an amazing journey, and I actually... Last week, I listened to some of our first episodes, and they were awesome. And I, it's been a journey, but it's been a really, really good one. And I am grateful to have come this well, far. Well, in some episodes to come, we need to talk a little bit more about your journey along with me. Because for those of you who don't know, when we met and fell in love, I was very early in my recovery. I was still in shambles, still just like <laughs> faking it till I could make it. And she's been through this whole journey with me, this journey of recovery from, of all things, a drug addiction that almost took my life. So let's get into it. But before we do, just a little personal insight into our life, whether you care or not, you can skip past this part if you don't want to here, but we're in it. This is like the most intense week of the year. It is. Our little daughter. And if any of you have daughters, granddaughters, niece, whatever, that do cheer. Yeah. It's a vibe. There's this it, that comes to a head real quick. Like there's all this practice and training, and then they have these cheer competitions. And I never knew what to expect going into one of those. I've done all my boys' sports. I played sports growing up, and I know that whole world. But this world of cheer competitions is intense. Yeah, it it, it is, and it comes at you Loud. just like you said, fast. And um, yeah, there's a lot of emotions this week. With hey, I, our daughter. And last year, though, I'm not going to make this about me, but yeah, I have you are. To first. You are going to make it about you. <laughs> I went to a high school. There's probably 800 people. If you follow me on Instagram, we made a video of it. There was at least 800 people in this auditorium. Yeah, school. It was a, yeah. All these different high schools there, packed auditorium. And at the end of it, my daughter's so, she's just so excited, right? Like I had little flowers for her and all the girls were so excited. And then she comes up with that little look, you know, that only a daughter can do. And telling me, come here, come here, daddy. And they had what was called, what did they call it? 
a dad jump off? Yeah, because so all of the different squads compete. And then while they're scoring everything, there's just like time. There's like a lull. And this high school is awesome because they know how boring that is to just sit there. So to past the time, they decided to invite any dad who wanted to compete in a jump off to come down in the middle. <laughs> and Willa, our daughter, was like, oh, my dad can do this. And well, <laughs> she, she gr- dragged so him down. She did. With that little look and her sweet little hand, she grabs my hand and she just drags me down onto the... Yeah, onto the mat. Onto the mat like, in front of all perform. these people. And so here's what I thought was going to happen. I was like, okay, I'll be a good sport. I don't mind making a fool of myself. Not at all. I thought all the dads were going to come down. We we're all just going to do some funny thing. No, it was very serious. It, I almost feel like I got set up. Like I was mad for a minute. They actually like lined us all up and then they brought us out in a row. And the, the mats had these lines. And so they would put each person in a line. So it'd be like number one, number two, number three. They singled us out. Guys, it was a toe touch competition. Like it was, it wasn't like do your best cheer. It was like a toe touch competition. And <laughs> This was actually one of those times where, at you know, this was last year, so we had been married for 14 years, and I was like, oh my gosh, I just uncovered this skill set that has been hiding for 14 years. Well, like, I had no idea my husband could do an absolutely flawless toe touch. <laughs> I mean, way better than I've ever done in my entire life. Okay, full disclosure, though, I had never attempted it before. I did show up to the competition in my gym clothes because I'd just been at the gym, so I had good shoes on. I was stretched up. I was warmed up. Still. Had my little short shorts on from the gym. and Plus, when there's that many people looking at you near a 1,000 people. There was some adrenaline. Adrenaline's going, and I didn't even care because there was one little face with these big eyes right at the edge of the mat, which was my daughter. Yes. Come on, Daddy. Come on, Daddy. Yes. So it, it it was actually terrifying, and I jump up. I'm like, in my, in my mind, I thought, okay, what if my legs go out, which I knew they could because I'm somewhat flexible, but what if they don't come back in time? <laughs> I thought I could be seriously injured if you fall with your legs open like that. So I jumped up, touched actual both my toes. Oh, yeah. Like legs, he hyperextended them. They were like above. And landed they, it. Yeah. And the crowd just erupts. Yeah. It was... And my daughter stands up clapping her hands. Looks like the most proud moment of her life. And I was like, it's over. No, the, no. Then what they did is they took all these dads and they brought them down to like the final six. Singled us out again. It was just crazy. And so round two, I go out, I do the toe touch, and then they start playing this music. And I went, I don't know, I felt super inspired. I felt so inspired. I went and tried to do a round off back handspring. He did. And um, I don't know, he's never done that before. Like that's not a thing that he's ever done in his life before that moment. So that's why it was so amazing to see that, like, in front of an audience of 800, he would just try and throw a back handspring for the first time ever at 44 years old. Yeah. It was amazing. It's very motivating when you have encouragement. You should go to Instagram and find it because it's inspiring. (laughs) It is. And just to let you know, he did win. He won. He got um, a trophy. Yeah. My daughter and I both left with these little ribbons first place. Yeah. It was awesome. So it was. It was an exciting experience. That's so, going to happen this weekend. So stay tuned. We'll let you know if he week, wins again. The, the redo of the yes. t- the dad toe touch. But hey, it is it is time to get into this. We want to empower you with some tools, some knowledge. This is unbiased information. Yep. Right. This isn't like me speaking on behalf of a place that I'm trying to get you to go yeah, to. We're not. We we are not affiliated with any specific facilities. We don't own a facility. Nothing like that. 
Today, what I want to talk about is the roadmap to recovery. Okay, we it would take days to cover the whole thing, but I just want to talk about specifically the challenges along the way, which are many. And I do want to preface by saying, if you love someone, your spouse, your child, your nephew, your grandchild, that is stuck in the deadly trap of addiction, and you think one of these two things, you're in some big trouble. One, that they're going to magically somehow wake up one day and want to change things on their own without someone intervening, persuading, or forcing their hand. It will never happen. Right. Two... If even you find what you think is the best place to send them, one of the highest recommended facilities in the country, that they're going to go there no matter what it costs and come home fixed, you're you, wrong. You are wrong. Which is why we stand firm in our convictions that the number one threat to addiction is a family who learns, a family who gets healthy, and a family who can support them. And through this tragedy, this tragic, horrendous experience with your loved one and their addiction, everyone in the family becomes a better version of themselves. So you need help. You need support. And I know it's the first thing people are like, well, wait, we're talking about my daughter or we're talking about my husband. What, what do you mean I need help? You have become ill with them along the way in one way or another. Doing things you never imagined doing, tolerating behavior you never imagined tolerating, nor did you with anyone else in your family. And doing things that you just could have never imagined doing. You end up disconnecting from the things you love doing in life, your friends, things that make you your life fulfilled. So when you get healthy, what happens? It threatens the addiction. It changes everything. And a healthier you gives them the best chance at recovery. That's right. Yeah. So I want to talk about a few things, though, that people aren't quite aware of that are challenges along the way. If you're fortunate enough to get your loved one to attempt recovery, right? If it's court ordered by a judge or it's forced upon by their family, what are some of the challenges along the way? Honestly, I see it as like, it's like the road to Damascus. Like there's endless challenges. Like it is a treacherous place to be. It is, it, it is. And I think that's, it's, um, it's difficult because I think a lot of people have this misconception that as soon as they're in um, a facility that they're like, they're somehow in the safety zone, right? Which they are for a moment, yeah, for a but moment. but it's it's misleading because that is where people are, are seeing it almost as like, oh, good, we we're at the end of this road. They're finally in this facility. It's it's actually the opposite. It's actually the beginning of the road. You just got on, like you're at the starting line. Amen. And I do want to mention. I have this unique opportunity of speaking to people every day. We have this process when people are trying to find out about our program. They watch this masterclass we've created, which is incredible. It speaks to them in a way nothing else has before. Yes, you can then watch get, it for free. Then they get to schedule a call. They get to learn more about the program. No pressure to buy anything. They're just in the discovery phase. Yeah. But I hear these stories, and I just want to share with you. Everyone I speak to are these incredible people who have accomplished so much in life, overcome some incredible things of their own in their life. They're successful. They're educated. They, and they're being ragdolled by this person they love. Yeah. So uh, addiction in someone takes the greatest of people, parents, families who are so united and amazing, and it just ragdolls them. 
And the reason is, is because addiction doesn't play by any sort of set of rules. There's other tragic things that happen in life. There's so many other fatal illnesses and, and terrible situations in life, but there's some like common ground and rules to follow. Like there's some things that you have to do as difficult and unbearable as those, as those are that you do. But when it, when it comes to addiction, it plays by no rules. It's the only fatal illness where the sick person fights to stay sick. It's the only fatal illness where those around them get, get sick too. So just own that. It's unlike anything else you've ever been through and you need help and support. Why? Because you're going to be the greatest resource for them. The number one component in the, we have a program, you know, it's split out into two. There's this program for spouses and a program for parents. We always talk about this, the number one component. We've done a podcast on just this topic before. Yeah. The number one component to someone recovering. Now we're not talking about getting 15 days or 30 days of sobriety. The number one component for someone to recover and become a transformed, transcended version of themselves is what? Time. I was hoping you'd give them a little more time to think about that. But maybe they paused it. Yeah, maybe they paused it. (laughs) It is time. Time to heal. Time to possibly believe in God again. Time to believe that something can restore them to sanity. Time for them to think that they're forgivable. It takes time. What gives them time? It could be a court order from a judge that says you have to go to a long-term program, or it could be a family who learns how to effectively intervene and then encourage them along the way. There may be a little bit of form of like even persuasion or dangling a carrot in front of them, but it's learning how to effectively persuade them to do what? Stay barricaded within some sort of program to give them time. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That is, may sound simple, but it's incredibly hard to do unless you have guidance in helping you do it because they can't do it without you. So, like, how much time do you think, are you thinking? Like, what what does that look like? That You could talk to 10 different professionals in the industry and maybe get a variation of answers to that. Yeah, because everybody wants it like a microwave. Like we want a microwave recovery. Okay. I can't remember the doctor's name, but I do remember when I was in treatment, there was a huge meeting. It was for families and people. And there was a doctor there that was like this renowned, world-renowned brain doctor. Talked about all the organs in the body too, as how long it takes them to heal, whether it was three weeks, three months, or liver takes two months, or kidney takes this or whatever. But when it came to the brain, there was all these studies done that showed that the brain took one year to heal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the medical terms of how it like regenerated cells or whatever it did, but it took a year. Yeah, just for the brain component to. And that was where they've seen these transformative numbers, right? Like the statistics in recovery or in sobriety are pretty dismal. And a lot of it's just because people haven't had time. Right. So I just say to give your mind something to wrap it around a year. And for most of that year, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to have to babysit the process. I, it could be your parent. It could be your spouse. It could be your 40-year-old son who was once very successful. They'll still need to be babysat through the process. Well, and I'm just going to jump in here and say that when I met Danny, he was just at a year of sobriety. And um, he is a very different person today than he was at that point. Now, what was he sober? Yes. Was he doing what was required? 
Yes. Was he healed? Absolutely not. And I had to step into that role of the babysitter, of the motive, of the motivator, of the one to help keep him accountable and help him going. And so a year isn't like, woo, like all like let let it go, like let all the brakes off. Like, no, not, not at all. But I think a year is a really solid amount of time for someone to get into a new rhythm, um, to create and form and keep new habits, um, things like that. But you know, it's it is a long road. Um, for yeah, you're, for he- you're you healing a disease, recovery, yeah. not not just simply sobriety. But the people who learn to do that also heal along the way, and it's this transformative it, thing it, for them. I was going to say it's such a beautiful journey too. It's not all like the worst and the scariest. It's actually a, a beautiful journey. Let's too. talk about the first few steps and what that looks like. Because if you hadn't been through it. Why would you know? You know, why would you know? And if you've already been through it several times, where did you go wrong? Let's just go through a few of these because we, and we'll just spend a couple minutes because otherwise we could dive into each one of these on our own segment. But let's just kind of go through the process. If someone was to heal, something intervenes, they go into a, a program of recovery. Those programs can differ, right? There's so many different options. And I'll tell you right off the bat, none of them are perfect. Not a single one. They all come with a lot of challenges. But there's no better place for them to start this than somewhere that is not with you. It's true. It needs to be with other people who understand, who have been there, who have been through it, where they feel safe, they feel understood, and they call them out on all of their BS. Yeah, which is really a relief um, if you're the one that's had to do that the whole time, right? Like you can kind of take that hat off for for a few minutes, you know, a few (laughs) days at least. I want to talk about just the first few steps. In our program, we go into depth in this. It's called learning the long-term plan of recovery, what that looks like for your loved one and what your support along the way looks like. But just the first few steps, detox. Detox is where you need to go be medically cleared to be stable, to be able to enter a program. Which is crazy. I never even knew that was a thing. Like, oh yeah, I had no idea that before you could even, a facility would even like accept you as a patient, that you had to be medically cleared. Yeah. Like, I thought that that all happened at one place. No, so any facility, that's one of the very first questions they do is they have a phone assessment. If, it's, if it can be in person, then great, even better. But they'll ask a series of questions just to find out. And what they're doing is checking to make sure... <laughs> that you are medically able to come to the facility or you need to go to a hospital or or a private detox center and become medically stable before you're cleared to come. Now, a lot of that has to do with insurance and liability and such, but there's two types of detox. There's medical detox where you go to a place and they have an abundance of different tapers, medicines, things that they can do to help regulate you and get you stable to pass you off to a treatment center. Most treatment centers are now capable of doing what's called a social detox. Social detox, in a sense, is just maybe if it's not so bad and they can use certain different medications to just kind of take the edge off. Now, MAT, M-A-T, stands for Medical Assisted Treatment, is part of everyone's journey at the beginning. However, there are addictions that people have, alcohol being one of the biggest, benzodiazepines being a second that you can die from the withdrawals. Right. Things like fentanyl and heroin and cocaine and meth, people, they 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 feel like they're going to die. Or they want to die or or they're going to die, but they won't. However, 
if you threw a person like that, and <laughs> there's millions of people who get thrown into jail cells and go through a hell that no one can comprehend. But you, if you got thrown into a facility and you're still shaking and tremor, tremoring and you're nauseated and your anxiety is super high, dope you're, sick. you're dope sick. Like there's no healing. There's no process. Start. It's a waste of time. Like they're a mess. So detox is the beginning stage. I do want to acknowledge one of the challenges we have because this, our society standards are so whacked out. I, I can't tell if they dropped or if just the level of addiction is raised so high. Yeah. The bar is so high. A combination of both. That now these detox centers are over, they're overflowing. Used to just, if someone needed to go to detox, you just drove them down to the hospital and they checked them in. Now they may have a seven day waiting period. Yeah, which is crazy. We're full. Our beds are full, which is why they've now, there's some other companies that have created these third party groups. Often insurance does pay for it. Sometimes it's just cash pay, but they have availability where you can go and maybe get like a different level of care where it's not like kind of a hospital type of feeling, but more of like, you know, private practice type of facility where they're getting you medically stable. All they're doing is trying to get you stable. When I say tapers, they have some, there's a lots of different needs. Um, Suboxone is one maybe some people have heard of. There's lots of different tapers where they will give you a medication that completely stabilizes the person from their withdrawals. And then they hope that over the course of five days, seven days, or possibly 14 days, they taper you off to where you're on nothing. Okay, we could go into this subject forever. But detox is an important one. Your loved one, if they go to treatment without being medically detoxed, or socially detox properly, they can't even begin to heal remotely. No. Because they're so uncomfortable. Yeah. I wish I could just go off for days, but it's when someone goes to treatment too, they're only there for a period of time. And most of the time they're there, they're uncomfortable. They're still trying to sleep right. Their, their, their digestive system doesn't work. They can't sit still. They're constantly anxious. So that's again why they need time. I think, I think one way to think of it, which is relatable to me because I've been through it, is like when you're at the hospital and you have a baby <laughs> and you think that that is going to be nice because like maybe if you have other kids, you're like, oh, I just have to focus on this one baby. Mm. But the thing is, is that they wake you up all the time. Like you can't really sleep. Like you're getting checked every, you know, two hours and like <clears throat> they turn on the lights and do all these weird things. Like that's kind of what it seems like it would be like inside of a facility is like you're kind of like there and you're trying to heal but you're also like crawling out of your skin because no mm. one will leave you alone and you're like on these different schedules and like being tested for different things and i mean maybe yeah, I'm you're wrong, exactly but... right you're exactly right it's a terrible place to be but it it's what kickstarts the process and i'm also going to throw one of the throw this out there there are so many people who've gone to detox they go there they get stable they get this poison out of their systems so that they're not shaking, they're not going into seizures, they're stopped sweating, and then guess what they do? What's the most common thing that happens at that point? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know, but my answer would be that they would be like, I'm good. I'm, I, I don't even need to go to a treatment center. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm done. I'm, it's out of my system. They never make it from there to the place of healing. Well, because I guarantee they're super convincing, too. Like they probably look so much better just to start off with that you're like immediately convinced like, oh, they're probably fine. Like that's all that they needed. They just needed to get it out of their system. Which is where I have to jump in and remind you. It doesn't matter if, the, if they're addicted to pornography, heroin, meth, cocaine, alcohol, 
that is not the problem. That was actually the solution they found to their problem. But over time, we know what all that does. It's too good to be true. The feeling it gives you doesn't last. It ends up taking over and you just become addicted. So it is not the drug. So if you go to a detox and they remove the drug so that your body stops shaking, whatever it is, you didn't do anything. You just took the poison out. But why were you using it? Right. Why were you self-medicating with that? That's why you got to go to the next phase, which is called residential, inpatient, recovery centers, whatever you want to, whatever you've heard before, rehab, right? Let's talk about it real quick. I'm not, again, we only have a minute to do this. There's a stigma around it. It yeah. doesn't work. It's only for people worse than me. People go to treatment all the time and they just go back and relapse. Yeah, it's a waste. It's a waste of time. There's a lot of stigma around it. Why is there such a high failure rate? How long are they supposed to go there? Where are they supposed to go there? What if, well, what is this one place does that's different than this other place? Here is like the most simple way to understand it. These places are imperfect places ran by people who have been broken down themselves and are now in the process of healing most often. And let me remind you, even when the treatment centers have the most qualified, incredible staff, all the other clients that are there are in bad shape. Yeah. So it's not like a beautiful, perfect environment. There's a lot of people dealing with the wreckage of their addiction. It's, it's, they're all a mess, but they are also very spiritual, incredible places of healing. And there is no better place. So it doesn't matter if they're all imperfect. They all have their own problems. They all have their own challenges. They all have things that your loved one's going to say they don't like about them. There's no other place to get this process started. Yeah. And there's no perfect place. Everybody tries to do it on their own. Everybody tries to do it in-house, which is the worst place to do it. Why? Because it's you. Yeah. But you have to go somewhere. And there's this beautiful, I've been through it. I've been through it on my own a couple of times. And there's this beautiful transformative experience when you are around other people who feel, who you, where you feel totally seen and totally understood. Yeah. Or you can't manipulate them. I remember how weird it was when all of a sudden I couldn't manipulate people with my words because they're so used to it where I could with my family. There's so many things, but that is the process of getting started. I want to tell you the most critical, important part about a residential program. They are not going to fix anything. They are there to do what you can't do and what other people aren't willing to do, which is to take this sick person and help them to take their first step or two. Yeah, I think that's the like that's really, really critical because I, I do. It's like what we said at the beginning. I think most people think that when they finally get their loved one into a treatment center, that they're at the finish that line. That was it, yeah. And, and you're at the starting line. Like you just pulled up on the starting line when they when they get there. And even when they leave there, you're still at the gates. You're still at the gates, but you're there and you've done some training and you kind of understand what it's going to take. You're prepared a little bit, you know, you've you've exercised. Well, and going. and you've had time too. Like I think that's a critical uh, a critical piece is like the people who have been in the chaos of this person got a little break from it for a minute. So even if that was like the only real takeaway which it's more than that, but even if that was it, that's a huge takeaway that you got like some time without that chaos. Like even if it was just 30 days, you got 30 days of a break where it was somebody else's problem to worry about your loved one. Yep. That's awesome. Everybody wins. Usually you can go take the vacation you haven't. 
or take a breath or sleep through the night. And they're, they're in the best place they can be, even though they're not perfect. So I do want to just mention something that I think is very critical to understand. The most critical part of going to a recovery center, rehab, whatever you want to call it, is what comes next. Yeah, that's the mystery. And the number one reason everyone fails when people go to treatment and then they get this stigma that it doesn't work is because when they leave, this person is like, okay, good, I'm done, I'm done, I'm good. And guess what? Believe it or not, they feel like they're better Yeah, because they are better, Yeah, but they're just a tiny bit better. And so everyone around them thinks, oh, good, let's get back to life. Like, thank goodness, we need your help. Like, you need to get back to work. We got bills piling up. And they they jump ship before they've had time to heal. Yeah. So the segue is what I teach about in my program, is what you do from inpatient residential to the next phase. There's lots of different things called IOP, intensive outpatient. There's aftercare. There's PHP, which is partial hospitalization program. There's all these different phases. But just think of it this way. What is the segue? Getting your loved one to segue into the next phase is actually more important, significantly more important than getting them to start. Going to a residential treatment center is no different than going to an ER. If you're in an accident, your arm's hanging off, you're bleeding out, they're going to bandage the wound, they're going to stitch it up, they're going to stop the hemorrhaging, they're going to get it cleaned up, they're going to get you all bandaged up, but you still have to heal. Yeah. There's still healing that needs to be done. So that happens in the segue. So what comes next? I want to bore you with this. You can go join our program and learn all these steps more in depth. But the segue into the next program is where I call it's the period of magic. That's where they get to start healing. Why? Because the segue usually includes them entering life a little bit again. Maybe a few hours a day they even get a part-time job or they have some time to themselves. But every single day they're in a program for part of the day where someone's holding them accountable, drug testing them, breathalyzing them. They're in group therapy. They're in individual therapy. They're surrounded by other people like them, others who are babysitting and monitoring the process. I hope I'm not boring some of you. But if you know someone— it's, it's so important it to is understand important. it. Because so, I'll, I'll say this. Danny's family didn't know this, and that's why he went to rehab twice and failed twice. Like, he was very convincing— um, that he was okay, that he didn't need like, okay, I did it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm cured. And that wasn't the case. It's not. And I, can I say something on that note? I want to empower with you again, with why the world's working against us. Treatment centers no longer, well, most of them no longer work with the family. And I want to identify why it's not out of bad intentions. It's not because they're bad people. They're, they're some of God's greatest humans on earth. There's a few reasons. And when I talk about how society standards are shifting, the demand for help with mental, the, the demand for help, the people have mental health issues or addictions is the highest it's ever been. And it continues to skyrocket. So the demand for people in these resource, these treatment centers is very high. They're not lacking customers. No. Like their people are lined up at the door. Second of all, insurance now recognizes addiction as a disease. And there's a lot of insurance who provide assistance to get help. So that just increases the demand for these places as well. All of them are overrun with people that needing help. They're limited in the resources they have. And also I want to share something that might hit home as I've interviewed several different places and clinical directors, but, um, more people than not that come into these treatment centers, I'm not saying all, but more than not come from a family who is the problem or maybe is a massive part of the problem. Dad may be an alcoholic. 
mom may be an addict. Lots of anger and resentment and hatred in the family. And again, that is that is a horrible statement, a horrible but it is true. And then it would follow that they wouldn't want to involve those people. So that it, when it has become, unfortunately, more common than not, again, it's not everyone, the goal of the facility with the precious few days or time that they have with them, guess what? They are intentionally trying to disconnect them from the family because it's so toxic at this point. That is, that is why the family's being neglected. Also, they don't have the time and resources. Imagine there's a sick person. They're just trying to help them at the time they have them. They don't have the time and resources and manpower to help the family as well. And that's, that's where I feel like it's the biggest tragedy because here you have this person who's so, so sick. They finally got into treatment and then either they don't have the, the support system, the family, they have a sick family, or they have an amazing family that literally has no idea what to do. And that is that right there is the gap we are filling because I don't want, I, I hate that statistic. I hate knowing that that's the truth. And I know that there are so many families that would give anything to have that kind of information and be empowered with the tools and the resources and the and the outline and the pathway to follow. And so that's literally what we created was we that. We did. And it addresses, you know, I'm going to wrap this up, but I think now I've just felt a little bit inspired that we're going to break some of these out a little bit more in detail. Yeah. But I just want to go back to what we said at the very beginning. If you think one of two things, that your loved one's going to do this on their own, you're wrong. That you're going to send them somewhere and the, this place regardless of where it is, is going to fix them, you're wrong. You are going to have to be there holding their hand, encouraging them every step of the way. So what do you do after the segue, right? What do you do if they possibly relapse? What does that look like? Like what, what are our actions? Like what are the right. consequences of that? What does ongoing recovery look like? What happens then? Like what is this whole thing with sponsors and people working a program and recover? What does that look like? Yeah. What's our involvement? Like how do we kind of encourage them to do it? How do we demand that they do it? Right. Right. How do you create new boundaries and how do you, how do you hold them up with a person that's basically a newborn baby emotionally and all of that? Like, and I, I can totally understand that because again, when I married Danny, he was basically a newborn emotionally. And did I have the skill set to know what to do? No, I didn't. Did I have the love? Yes. I had the love. I had the faith. I had the energy but did I have the the tools and the knowledge? None. I had none. I had no idea. Even my best ideas were not it. And I had to learn what that looked like, what to do. And, and the relapse thing, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody who's in our program right now, and she um, said, you know, when um, you married Danny, uh, were you worried about him relapsing? And I said, yeah, I was. it was probably my biggest fear. And she said, well, did he think that he would relapse? Like, was that a conversation? And I said, oh, no, no, no one in recovery thinks that they're ever going to relapse. Like, they're never going to think that that's going to be a part of their journey. And she said, well, did he? And I was like, yeah, not not back to square one, but relapsing emotionally, relapsing to to some other bad habits. Yes. Did, did I have to know what to do or, you know, what or I could have just run, I suppose, um, when that happened. But that right there, 
that problem, that very real problem, is exactly why joining our program and community is so amazing. And it's a hard one, too, because you're sitting there going, well, why should I be doing this? Like, come on, you're a grown oh, man. Oh, totally. Like, I, I mean, I'm exactly like I was like, well, this isn't my problem. Like, this is his problem. Like, I can't do it for him. But and while that's true, there are things that you can do to help encourage, motivate, help them stay accountable. Which help you to create healthy boundaries. I was going to say, but also there was, it was very clear and I made it very clear that there was no way that I was going to get dragged down into this. That if certain things weren't happening, unfortunately I couldn't continue in the relationship. And I had to learn those things. Yep. Um, so. So there were a few other things I wanted to go through, but we're not going to right now. Where do they go? What do they do after? What comes after that? What happens if they relapse? What's my support look like? What do we do to encourage them? How do we keep them accountable? What is my role? That is what you need help for. And believe it or not, along that way, you're going to learn very clearly, (laughs) sometimes it's brutal clarity, how you've gotten sick yourself along the process, going down this road with them, and you become a stronger version of yourself. And believe it or not, it might be your child or spouse's addiction that transcends you to an awesome place that helps you deal with the challenges down the road. It might be an addiction of all things that taught you those lessons. Amen. Definitely. But by doing this, you actually help them along the way. I know from experience, and every man that I look up to, all my mentors, people in the industry, men who are and women who are 25 years, 20 years, 18 years into their recovery, who've become the best version of themselves through this process, every one of them had an amazing family who learned along the way with them, gathered the tools they needed to kind of motivate them along the way, call it whatever you want, and also to get healthier themselves. That was that was the game changer. So we will stand firm, and we know, unfortunately, it doesn't apply to everyone. But for those families that it does, it changes everything. We didn't get to get into some of this, but I do want to talk about a few things that have dropped real quick. Society standards. There are, you can go to any drive-through place if you want now, and there's even treatment centers who are using this as marketing pieces, right? Ketamine treatments. They have marijuana edibles. They have... uh, People are using different things to help them, right? A lot of people are being prescribed Adderall to help them in the beginning. This is wrong. Any of these things I understand have their own unique benefit, but they're being used inappropriately. They're being used as like, oh, well, we can help you get off of your addiction by taking this other mind-altering substance. That's a big problem. And a lot of treatment centers have been sucked down into that. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. That's where our society standards are dropping. You're going to go to treatment centers where they're intentionally not helping the family because, believe it or not, they think you're the majority, which is the problem. There's a lot of different issues to go through. And even the stigma of if you go to treatment, let's just say that you're like drinking way too much and use garbage pill using different types of drugs and addicted to porn, and you go to treatment and you're surrounded by like five or six other people that are like homeless heroin addicts. They're like, oh, I guess I'm not that bad. And families are like, oh, maybe they don't need to be there. There's so many things working against it. So It's so confusing. It's It's so confusing. Your loved one is sick. Please hear this out in closing. Your loved one is sick. And if you're a dad who just wants him to knock it off, you've got to get over that. At some point, 
before, like some point earlier on, they maybe had a chance to knock it off, but now they're sick and they cannot do this without you. And we address that elephant in the room all the time that it's not fair. They did this. They caused this. They put everyone into this situation. So why don't they find their way out of this mess? And they can't. You are the difference maker. You are the difference maker. Close it for us. All right. I'm going to just repeat the serenity prayer for families. It's something that we firmly believe in. And it is that God grant me the serenity to accept that I cannot change other people. The courage to change the person that I can and the wisdom to know that it is me. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll bring you another episode next week, maybe break out some of these specific topics to help you understand them more. But please go to our website, send us in any information that you want to hear, share this with someone that you know who needs it. And we appreciate you joining us in this journey. Thank you. Have a good week.